0: Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology, when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. As usual, we have an amazing panel today. I'm joined by Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party. Mike, I'm going to have to come up with something to say between your <laughs> names. Again, Madrid, it's great to have you back.
1: Great to be with all of you.
0: Political strategist, crisis communications consultant, and Lincoln Project senior advisor, Susan Del Percio. Susan, it's always a great to have you on.
2: It's great to be with you.
0: And Lincoln Project co-founder, communications strategist, former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, and as of this morning, a former Republican... Jennifer Horn, Jennifer, thank you for making the time today.
3: It's great to be here, Ron. Thank you.
0: On today's episode, we're going to break down the announcement that Attorney General Bill Barr will resign next week, the Michigan congressman who just left the Republican Party, and Mitch McConnell's warning to Senate Republicans not to challenge the election results. So let's start with Bill Barr. On Monday, Donald Trump announced via Twitter that Attorney General Bill Barr will resign next week. And just as a reminder, we're 33 days out from the inauguration uh, when this episode will be published. Earlier that day, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany said in a Fox News interview that Trump had recently been frustrated with Barr, and this came after Barr said this month that there has been no evidence of widespread fraudulent voting. I repeat, there has been no evidence of widespread fraudulent voting. Barr has regularly prioritized Trump's political goals. After the release of the Mueller report, Barr delivered what CNN called a misleading summary of the report. Throughout the summer, Barr parroted Trump's claim That increased mail-in voting would lead to widespread voter fraud. And Barr was also the official who ordered authorities to disperse the peaceful protesters at Lafayette Square so that Trump could walk to St. John's Church. So, Mike, I want to go to you on this question first, because we've been talking about this for months now, that the enablers around Trump would start jumping ship after he lost the election. So how much of this do you think is about Barr trying to move away from Trump and how much is this really about his refusal to investigate fictitious voter fraud? I think
1: it's actually about both and probably a little bit more. Um, what I think this story really is about is kind of the devolution of power, Trump's power, and the gradual movement away from that circle of people who have been complicit in, in holding and propping this regime up. Um, so look, in, in 33 days, Donald Trump becomes just citizen Trump again. He does not have the awesome power of the federal government behind him. And all of the scaffolding that has held up all the reasoning behind the fear that he was able to imbue amongst people around him, especially with his close to circles, starts to uh, come down. And I think that the bar, this, this move by Barr, and I'm sure it wasn't, um, you know, just him deciding to leave, there was probably some tense Mm -hmm. pushing that was going along too, Um, just the the writing being on the wall, I think really was a major piece in a turning uh, in Washington, D.C. of the enablers that have allowed this to go on far, far too long. Obviously, we at the Lincoln Project and others have been pushing for this, for the courage of people to stand up and do this and break the dam. It never really happened. Um, it never really happened because he was the president of the United States and wielded both the platform and the awesome power of of our federal government. Um, as that starts to wane away, we are truly seeing a lame duck and and every day he becomes less powerful. And as that happens, Um, A lot of this, the enablers will going to start melting away and try to fade into the background. I think you're going to start seeing people kind of peeling off and jumping off. No one wants to be the last person here, except for maybe Kayleigh McEnany. Um, But that's, that's, I think, I, I think that that is what is happening. And like I said, the sad part is there will probably be books written about this phase, this interregnum period. Because I think it really is a textbook example of what was propping all of this up. And yeah. I think people are becoming less and less fearful of Donald Trump, especially those that aren't seeking elected office. And um, we're going to start seeing the wallpaper come off. The, the facade is falling away.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you, you mentioned the history books, Jennifer. I think we're still living through a period that's going to be written about in textbooks. And now that he's leaving the Justice Department, what do you think the paragraph about Bill Barr will say? How how should the American people be thinking about his tenure as Attorney General?
3: Well, first to Mike's remarks, let's let's just be honest. You know, Donald Trump's always been lame.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and by the Trump... way, he's he's going to be not President Trump, but Citizen Trump, but also Person of Interest Trump. I mm. think yes, in yes, multiple exactly. investigations. Let's not forget that.
3: Really lame person of interest, <laughs> Trump. Like, I'm going to start using that word. I think that's, we should have been using that all along. That's the term, right? Person of interest? <laughs> y- yes, person of, lame, lame person yeah, of interest. Right. So I think, uh, you know, the paragraph about Barr is going to include words like corrupt and um, possibly criminal. The anti, anti-democracy anti is probably a, a phrase that could be, anybody who supported this president's efforts um to not just the folks post election who supported him actually go- going into the courtroom, the courtrooms and things like that, but who supported him in a way that allowed him to undermine the credibility of the election months before it ever took place. Um, you know, Barr was all on board about the idea that, the, to your point earlier on, mail in voting was going to cause, you know, massive voter fraud. You know, all of these things that have been accused and had absolutely no evidence whatsoever. So I, I think that he'll that he will be remembered as being one of the worst, most destructive, uh, most corrupt attorney generals that we've had. You know, certainly in modern history, in this country, Um, but also to to build on something that Mike just said about the enablers kind of starting to fall away, which we certainly expected that they would at this point—that once the president no longer had the, um, you know, could no longer offer them the benefits of his office, that they would start to start to peel off. But I would also point out that there are an awful lot of them who aren't and that's mm-hmm. really a concern for the country going forward as well 126 members of congress signed on to the worst most undemocratic anti-democracy um, effort to overturn the outcome of a legitimate election that we have ever seen well, something that can you know only be considered you know to, in some ways a, an attempted coup to overthrow a legitimate government of the country they were all republicans they all signed on last week they, they know that, that that effort was going to fail. They know that Trump has lost. They know that there is no future that holds a President Trump. Yeah. And yet they did this anyway. Yeah. So there are an awful lot of Trump enablers out there who are still in elected positions and are going to be for at least the next two years or more. And those are the people that we should be worried about.
0: Yeah, and we should be worried about them. But Susan, of the ones who are... Trying to distance themselves, how successful do you think those enablers are going to be in in trying to, you know, peel themselves away from Trump's legacy once he's out of office?
2: Um, that stain is on them forever. You can't erase it. It is there. It is a cherry red soda in a white cotton shirt stain (laughs) that's never going to go away. Full stop. And I think we have to look at, I want to bring it back to Barr a little bit. Like if you think about like three types of people follow Trump. Yeah. One is like the cheerleader, Rudy Giuliani. He'll just do anything. Then there are the enablers who actually kind of write up the orders and say the president wants you to do this. But then there's a special place in, in history for Bill Barr because he was the enforcer and saw yeah. them carried out. And that is what makes him different than an ordinary Trump enabler, who is bad. But Barr took it one step further and he backed it up and he enforced things that should have not been, including towards the end of the election, yeah, you know, right before the election on voter fraud. And the fact that he's leaving, He is a coward. He can't Mm -hmm. even stand up to President Trump for another 33 days. He has to pack his bags and go. So he's a coward and he is a disgrace to the office he held. And he will go down in history as the worst attorney general that this country has ever had and probably ever will and will actually be the reason we have all of these new types of uh, legislation that we see in the next several years to prevent Things that he did. So he will always be footnoted for the wrong of what happened in the Trump administration.
0: Yes. So well said. I think it's also important to underscore you mentioned the office that he held. Bill Barr is the guy who was supposed to be responsible for standing up for the rule of law in the first place. While we have a president, had a president, have for 33 more days, a president who doesn't care about the rule of law and flouted at every opportunity.
3: Bill Barr as attorney general has done more damage to the concept of no man is above the law than, not just attorney generals, than anybody else in this country, because he's the attorney general and conducted himself the way that he did. As if, as he essentially told the world that in fact, one or two men might actually be above the law. And that applies to all of you guys. But there are one or two maybe who aren't who aren't going to be covered by that. That is where the greatest damage from Bill Barr comes from. Yeah. To your point, Bill Barr was brought in as the institutionalist. That's Don't right. forget, right. there
2: were That's a right. lot of people, including myself. I know,
0: I know some of them who know him personally and were hopeful. Right.
2: Yeah. And because he was part of that old boys network, we didn't think he would want to be embarrassed. Like he would be hopeful. Yeah. yeah. But it just goes to show you how Donald Trump pollutes everything around him as well because he brings you in, he isolates you from everyone else and now he, you're just with him and that, that, that muck just just swallows you up and there's no place else to go. And that's where, where Bill Barr ended up. And the fact that he has a couple of days left and he's leaving <laughs> because he doesn't want to see Donald Trump's angry
3: tweets, I mean, really, grow up. Speaking of lame, speaking of lame, you know?
0: Yeah. I think the theme of this segment may end up being too little too late, but let's talk about leaving the Republican Party. Also on Monday, retiring Michigan Representative Paul Mitchell, no relation to the hairstylist, announced (laughs) he was leaving the Republican Party during an interview with Jake Tapper. Mitchell told Tapper that quote, this party has to stand up for democracy first, for our constitution first, not political considerations, end quote. He also noted that Republican leaders have been collectively sitting back and tolerating unfounded conspiracy theories and stop the steel rallies without speaking out for our electoral process. Now, Mitchell's decision to leave the Republican party isn't without bravery per se, but he did announce his retirement back in July of 2019 and has just weeks left in Congress, in his current office. There were a couple instances where Mitchell spoke out against Trump. Um, last month, he tweeted at Trump asking him to drop the false claims of voter uh, voter fraud. And he previously condemned Trump's suggestion that four freshman Democratic Congresswomen go back to where they came from. So Susan, I want to go to you first here because he is leaving the party. He He said some admirable things, but how should we be thinking about Paul Mitchell specifically leading the Republican caucus. Why haven't we seen more high-profile officials take the same level of issue with Trump's attempts to undermine the election?
2: You see, i rather see more people stay in the party or stay in office and call Donald Trump out. That's the bravery. That's what we need to see. That's a movement people can get around because doing it on your way out Okay, but it's certainly not a profile in courage, although I will say this, at least for the time being, he does lend a voice, you know, as 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 an elected official, as a member of Congress to say, I am leaving the party. It it does matter. And even if it's just for a few moments Mm -hmm. that people hear that in the news, look, another Republican, you know, is against Trump and, and leaving because of him it's not the worst thing, but it's also, like I said, it's not something that we should, you know, hope more people do. I rather see just the opposite.
0: Mike, can you help us understand why a retiring congressman is more willing to speak out against Trump and leave the party? Yeah, I'm not sure that needs much explanation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But but, I mean, look, those that have stood up, you know, Jeff Flake, right, stands up early and he's basically driven out of the party. Justin Amos knows that this is going to happen to him as one of the leaders of the Freedom Caucus, but these are men who stood on principle. And they understood that it was going to mean the end of their political careers and were willing to make that sacrifice. To me, that's courage. That's the kind of leadership that is required. It's times like these. It's It's saying, I know what is going to happen to me, but I will stand for the right thing even if i'm not remembered, even if i don't have the benefits of of office, even if i can't cash in later and even if i am a man without a party. Yeah. Um this is a little bit different. Um sure, you know, it was, it, it makes for a little bit of news but it's on the way out. Yeah. He clearly it, it didn't just wake up one day and decide this. He's obviously known and struggled with it for some time, probably the whole time of the Trump presidency. And look, it it's never too late to do the right thing, right? Um as Martin Luther King taught us, but there's, yeah. there's there are writer times. There to are do the right thing. Types. and it's sometimes when it's earlier in the process, I think that's when you have to stand up and say enough. Because what we have learned with this project, the Lincoln Project experiment, which is you know a year old. Essentially, right now was, you know, there were eight people willing to stand up, and that our eight voices became 16, and they became 32, and they became 64, and it grew exponentially. But it takes people to stand up when it is not easy. And the longer people wait, the harder the fight becomes. And that is such an important lesson. In our politics today. And it's something that is clearly wrong with the Republican Party. But I think it's frankly something that's wrong with partisan politics in general is there have to be people of conscience and courage that stand up and say enough. This is the line that we will not cross.
0: As our friend Stuart Stevens says, you don't get into a fight because you think you're going to win. You get into it because it's the right thing to do. Because it's the right fight. Jennifer, I mentioned this at the top of the show, but you wrote today that you are leaving the Republican Party. You started speaking out against Trump back in the 2016 election cycle and have been really vocal. Can you help us understand your own process for deciding to leave the Republican Party?
3: I actually spoke out against Trump for the first time in April of 2011.
0: Oh, when wow.
3: I, when I wrote an op-ed for the New Hampshire union leader, he was up here testing the waters for the 2012 cycle. And I always say Mitt Romney scared him off. Um, but I, I wrote an op-ed back then where I said, if the Republican Party takes him seriously, then they'll, they deserve what they get. Yeah. Um, everything that I suggested in that op-ed times 5 million has turned out to be true, first of all. But I have believed, and I think now erroneously, even over the past five years, I have been of the belief that there are good, principled people in this party who were fighting like I was for certain principles and values and rejected Donald Trump, but believed that the party itself had a firm footing upon which to build. And, and that they would come together and coalesce when Trump was gone. And that there would be an opportunity at least to make the argument for the party of Lincoln again. And, and you know, I, I always said, in these last six months, 12 months in particular, that there's no place in this country for a Republican Party that embraces bigotry and racism, for a Republican Party that thinks it's okay to cage children for any reason, for a Republican Party that stands by silently while hundreds of thousands of Americans lose their lives to a pandemic that this president knew everything about and chose not to take action on. So in my heart of hearts, I had this thought That when we were post Trump, that all these people in leadership, elected Republicans, would even though I would have found it weak that they were unwilling to do so while he was president, that they would start to come forward and start to kind of, like I said, coalesce around this idea of rebuilding the party on our foundational principles. In the last four weeks, as we have watched elected Republican leaders engage. In the most anti democracy effort that I have ever seen in my life, trying to overturn the outcome of a legitimate, free, and fair election, trying to overthrow a legitimately elected governance of the United States of America as if we are nothing more than a third rate banana republic, has been shocking to me. Mm-hmm. 126 elected Republicans currently sitting in the U.S. House put their name on that effort. 19 Republican attorney generals. Millions of average Americans, activists who call themselves Republicans, encouraged this and donated money to support it. And were pushing for it. That is a party. And, and all of this, knowing that Donald Trump is gone, they all know he lost. They all know that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. And yet they still engaged in what I think is probably the most unforgivable sin in a democracy. So that what that tells me is that these people who have been elected under the banner of the Republican Party have made a conscious, clear, coordinated decision to build the future of our party on the misogynistic, racist, divisive, uncaring, uh, you know, unstable, nationalist world that is Trumpism. Even though Trump is now gone, they could cut the cord and walk away right now and never have to deal with him again if they wanted to. They are choosing to build the future of our party on Trumpism. I cannot be a part of that. I cannot continue to try to convince myself or anybody else that there is a place where we can build a, a, a credible, dignified effort toward conservatism in that world.
0: I just want to quote briefly from your op-ed because it's so well-written. And it's in USA Today for all of our listeners. You should go and read it. You write, On Thursday... The one-year anniversary of the founding of the Lincoln Project, I will go to my town hall and rescind my registration as a Republican and register as an independent. I do so not because of Trump, but because of everyone else in the party who openly embraces Trumpism, because of the party's perfidious leaders, and a platform that advocates against equal rights for all. Well said. Thank you. All right. On Tuesday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell warned Republican senators not to challenge the election results when the House and Senate meet on January 6th, according to Politico. McConnell told his caucus that challenging the results would force them to make a terrible vote where they would either need to vote down the challenge or appear to be against Donald Trump. Since the news broke, Republican Congressman Mo Brooks has called McConnell's effort the Surrender Caucus. Several Republican senators have hinted that they may vote to challenge the election results. And Josh Hawley of Missouri and Ted Cruz of Texas told Newsweek that they were undecided on whether they would challenge the vote. Kelly Loeffler, who is still running the Georgia runoff against Reverend Raphael Warnock, has also left the door open to challenging the results. So I just want to flag one thing about this story. McConnell's telling them not to challenge the results, not because... He is trying to do some, kind of, some good here. He's trying to prevent them from taking a vote that would cause them to lose later or make them look bad later. This has nothing to do with Mitch McConnell standing, suddenly you know, growing a spine and standing up for democracy. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. So Mike, on a recent Explained episode, I talked about how a member of both the House and Senate would need to challenge a state's electoral votes and then both chambers would need to vote in favor of the challenge for the electoral votes to be thrown out. What is the likelihood that any votes would be successfully challenged.
1: Not good. I mean, look, what, what's happening here, there's a broader dynamic at play here. I, it's eerily reminiscent, just again, the, the, the political dynamics of when Osama bin Laden was killed. Al Qaeda shatters and it, it, it disperses into a whole number of different cells with different agendas, both political and ideological. I think that's what's going to happen to the Republican caucus when Donald Trump leaves. There's still going to be this Trumpist faction that he's going to try to coalesce. But Mitch McConnell will be the most powerful Republican in Washington. And he is doing right by his caucus while he's not doing right by his country uh, in terms of his motivations. That's absolutely true. But the, 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 the nonsense that will continue and, – and look, this, after Joe Biden's president, there's still going to be Republicans who are going to be trying to lay claim to all this stuff by, by still tackling voter fraud and how Trump lost whatever races they're going to say or claim yep. that he – I mean, it's absurd. But it's not going to stop, right, to, to Jennifer's point, and, and it, the, the enablers are now completely complicit in what this party oh, yeah. stands for. The Republican Party is the single largest threat to American democracy, not only at this moment, but probably that we may have ever known, at least since since the secession of the Southern states in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that with any hyperbole. That's that uh, we, we've never had a president refuse to concede an election when we quantifiably know that it was yeah. from his own administration, from his own administrators. Krebs was telling us this is the cleanest, most secure, honest election that we have ever had. So I I think we need to really step back and understand that by virtually every definition, what we are watching is authoritarianism take root, deep, deep root in this country. And as I have said before, and and I will continue to say in the coming months, this is a social problem manifest in our politics. It's not just political power. And we are going to have to – democracies don't have the tools to fight this off. You can't win this with a political campaign. Defeating Donald Trump was the easy part. Yes, this this social dynamic is the real challenge and test for this generation. And it's not going to happen in one or two election cycles. This is about demographic change. It's about technological change. It's about economic transformation and this Petri dish, which is catalyzed essentially in 2016 and 2020. It's the end of the beginning is the way we need to look at January 20th when Trump leaves. This is a long slog of a battle as we transform into a new society socially where our politics are completely incapable of addressing these problems.
0: So, so well said we have to also, I think you're getting at this Mike because it's a social problem, but we have to address the demand for these ideas. Because if you think about the the marketplace of ideas, right? This idea that we should vote to overturn the election has taken hold because there's a market for it. And because those kind of ideas Spread like wildfire, the more salacious, the more we know this about fake news. We know this is why false information spreads faster than true information because it's incendiary. There Donald Trump has created a market for this kind of toxicity. And that's, I think, what you're getting at when we're talking about the social problem that underlies the political problem,
1: yeah. And keep in mind. remember during the industrial age, when we moved from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy, you had the rise of the Luddites. The Luddites were committed to using social destruction to stop progress. We're witnessing the exact same thing today, except part of the technology available isn't just machinery, it's the internet, which allows for dramatic transformation and allows people to, 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 to share misinformation and conspiracy theory and work in coalition across states as opposed to just across town. And so whenever human beings have gone through these periods of remarkable social transformation there's always been a visceral attempt to shut down and frankly destroy the mechanics of that change that's what trumpism is yeah but it's not just donald trump who's selling it who's the snake oil salesman who's taken the pt barnum role and saying i can make money off of this dynamic and i don't care about the institutions as long as i'm 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 you know monetizing the sucker born every minute this is about um, the ability to scale what the Luddites did and the Know Nothings did, and other parts of our society have done during times of extraordinary economic, demographic, and technological change. That, yeah. That's what's happening.
2: To add on to what Mike said, one component when he talked about it's a threat to democracy, and we talk about social change, let's just look at what happened this weekend and know this past weekend and know that it is likely to be the beginning. The violence on the streets in Washington, D.C. When you talk about immense social change, it has traditionally, historically, been accompanied by some sort of violence. You have a president who says, stand by, not stand down. So, When this vote comes on January 6th, I think, you know, Donald Trump still has 33 days. He can be a very, even though he's lame and a lame duck for those 33 days, he can be very dangerous and what he can incite, we have to be mindful of because that, it just takes a spark to go from Mike's discussion of of social change to social change with violence, With almost an anarchy to it, because you don't need 75 million people to do that who voted for Donald Trump. You just need a couple of thousand who can show up, who are there already. So the danger, I I think we would be making a big mistake to just say inauguration is going to come and go. We have to look at the dangerous times that we are still in.
0: Absolutely. Jennifer, I want to go the, to the politics of this vote, and I'd love for you to unpack it for, for people. To make it clear why senators like Cruz, Hawley, and Loeffler have left the door open and how the American people should be thinking about the fact that members of Congress are contemplating challenging the results of an election when there hasn't been any evidence of voter fraud. And what does it mean that either way they vote on this will be a bad vote for them? And that's why Mitch McConnell is encouraging them, not pleading with them in some reports, not to do that.
3: Well, well, this goes back to some of what I said earlier and what I've been saying, um, you know, what I said in the op ed and to, and some other, mm-hmm. you know, spaces today that the degree to which the, the Republican party is going to build their future on Donald Trump and his, and his strategies and, you know, his ugliness. Um, these people are of the belief. I don't know. I don't want to say worried because that suggests compassion even, you know, um, these people are of the belief. One, that they need to do this in order to maintain their, the, their base of voters that they think they cannot win without. And two, they are willing to do it. They know it. They are conscious. They are informed. They are being strategic. They know that what they are doing is wrong, that it is, that it is uh, factually incorrect that there was any voter fraud and any basis for challenging this. Um, they know that it is morally wrong. They know that it is wrong for the country. The reason they're doing it is because they believe it could be right for them as individuals who want to retain political power. That's it. That's all there is to this. There is no greater cause. There is no noble um, you know, principle that they're trying to advance. They will deny to their death. That they, that they don't already know that this is a, a dangerous and damaging and unfounded thing that they're doing. Um, but I have to say that when it comes to taking, uh, immoral, unethical, unpatriotic, damaging actions as a strategy, as a political strategy, Mitch McConnell's kind of the, he's the, the expert at that. He, they learn, he might not like what they're thinking about doing, but they learn from him. So, you know, there there is zero, zero foundation for this. It will be incredibly damaging to the republic, and they are thinking they will do it anyway.
0: All right. Now that we are up to speed on the biggest stories this week, let's look ahead briefly to next week. And Susan, I want to start with you. What stories and developments are you watching for? I think you have some breaking news for us actually right now. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> actually, John, alert, Dicker- alert. John-, John Dickerson does the best uh, the best news alert on the, on the Political <laughs> Gap <fest. laughs>
2: uh, Um. Actually, it looks like there's a hack at the uh, Department of Energy, which is where we keep our nuclear weapons. And uh, or not where but that oversees the operation. So we're now looking at a very potentially dangerous situation and it's not isolated We have seen hacks. We've we've heard all this week how russia's been hacking different parts of our government This is what people were talking about when they said this was when we are most vulnerable as a country Is between the election and the inauguration and this is what people are afraid of because people are leaving government. Donald Trump certainly isn't focused on doing anything for our, our country as we watch the numbers increase by 3,000 a day of COVID deaths. So it is, to me, frightening to, to know that we're not at 100% and these things are happening. On the lighter side, <laughs> tomorrows I mean, next week is Christmas. And um, I think donald trump's going to be giving out an awful lot of pardons for christmas mm-hmm. I I just have that feeling. I think it's the one thing he's focused on that he can do and maybe take the news cycle A little bit and then just on a completely separate note I just like to say it is such a privilege to be on the show with three founders And while you're looking at the first year of what you all have done and and brought a lot of people like myself along Who are all grateful for you stepping up to do this I want to look beyond next week and can't wait to see what what happens next year. So thank you, all three of you and the other four who aren't
3: here.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Susan. We're so glad to have you here. Jennifer, what are you watching?
3: Well, now I'll be watching the hack at the Department of Energy. Yeah, I think we all are.
0: I know. Should we take a break for that? Jeez. (laughs)
3: Um, I'm going to be looking at the COVID numbers. You know, we've seen this post Thanksgiving spike. We're heading into the Christmas, um, you know, the Christmas holidays with families wanting to get together. Uh, We've had a significant spike in the small community where I live just in the last last week or so. Um, The, I think that we are all rightfully optimistic about the future of the vaccines and the fact that they're rolling out and and where that could bring us in 6 to 12 months. Um I am very concerned though about what we're going to see in the next 4 to 6 weeks with um coronavirus uh, not just not just the spread but um you know lives lost as well. And let me add on to what Susan just said about um uh you know next next week is christmas not everybody celebrates christmas some people are just you know have just finished their hanukkah celebration they uh the, people have a lot of lot of ways that they celebrate at this time of year um i am genuinely grateful uh, and it took me a while to figure that to get to this point i am grateful for 2020 it has been a really shitty year personally politically for the burden on our and lost on our country and that we have experienced as a family. But I am finally at a point as we come to the end of the year, good news on the vaccine, good news that Joe Biden is going to be our president. And I'm getting to a place where I am starting to feel like I am stronger today than I was on January 1st of 2020. And that's a good thing. That's
0: a good thing. Here, here. Mike, what are you watching?
1: I'm watching the vaccine numbers as well, and I think it didn't really hit me until I was watching some pictures on social media of the planes landing in different um, cities around America. And you just, the the pictures, and there were still photos, there weren't even videos. I'm just realizing there's these sub-zero pieces of technology that human beings have created and put on these big metal carriers that fly through the air and get all over the country, and they land with radar technology and they're going to be moved through these, uh, big airports filled with, you know, electric lights, lighting it up. And you just, you just think, man, as, as messy as we are as human beings, we are truly an incredible species and we do really amazing things and we have overcome such incredible things to get to where we're at in, 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 in this phase of our history, um, 2020, I think, will be looked back as a, as a rather remarkable, pivotal year, as, as Jennifer was saying. And I trust that we will learn from it, but I, I am mindful of all of the clutter in our political and social environment of the fact that there are scientists doing amazing things and teachers doing amazing things and people on the front lines and all of those people that we have come to have a better appreciation for um, were pretty remarkable i i I just I'm constantly reminded of that um when when you look for it, and you see it in 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 those few glimpses of just what it is we're capable of doing
0: all right. I have two listener questions today. The first one comes from Penny Liu, who writes, "How can we help on a local level to fight Trumpism? Mike, do you want to take that one? I actually finished
1: up an op ed to to this effect. Um, as we start looking at Trumpism, and again, Trumpism is kind of, depending on how you define it, this peculiar dish of either populism, nationalism, nativism, isolationism, protectionism—it's all of these things. But what it fundamentally comes down to is fear. Mm. It's fear-based, and when you are—you know—there w- are Trump supporters in our families, in our in our neighborhoods, and in all of our communities. And as I've talked about on previous podcasts, there's two ways to deal with this. There's either kind of this open engagement, which Jennifer has been so helpful with in in in, in working with and, and, and engaging folks to teach them and give them the tools to bring people out of their shells. Or there is kind of the Mike Madrid method, which is treat it like a virus, socially distance yourself from it, isolate it, <laughs> compartmentalize <laughs> it and ostracize it and let it die off on its own. Um, I, I'm 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 still of the belief that unfortunately we are witnessing something that requires um, the latter here, and I'm not suggesting that we fight with our neighbors, but I'm also suggesting that we have to be mindful that what we're witnessing is not just a difference of opinion; we're li- literally living in different worlds, and just in the same way you can't imagine yourself probably being coaxed into uh, or convinced to voting for donald trump the reverse is also true and it's just going to have to work its way through our body politic. some of these things don't have a cure they just have to be weighted out it's kind of like the common cold right you just or you just you're just gonna the body's just gonna have to work it out and i think that as we go through this stretch and go through this process uh we're going to find a better place. I'm convinced of that, but I don't think it's going to be easy. As I said, we are at the end of the beginning with Donald Trump leaving office, and it's going to be a difficult time that will test the American character.
2: And I'd just like to follow up real quick on that. And Mike's going to disagree with me, but I think we have to stop calling it Trumpism. We can call it all of those other things. Mm. But I think if you want to start defeating Trumpism at the local level, stop calling it that oh, and get involved at point. the local level. So you're not fighting. We have to stop fighting about Donald Trump. So get involved at the local level. That's where change starts to happen. You can get on you know, the boards of whatever you're you're committees are and and get involved but stop calling it trumpism and stop having that fight what do you want and when you we most people and again i i know there is the minority that wants anarchism and 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 wants to fear be but most people the principles are still kind of there because donald trump never had any so the core principles are there so if you get involved You can help change it because it's going to be through that state legislator or the city council member is the first evolution of new politician, which we desperately need.
0: Yeah. So in other words, to borrow Mike's metaphor of the body politic and this working your way through it, do your part to boost our civic immune system so that it can resist this kind of toxic ideology.
1: I agree with Susan, by the way. Yeah, there's no disagreement with Susan. I think
0: she's right. The second question comes from Carlton Huffman, and he writes, based on what we've seen in 2020, what is the potential realignment of states going forward? And what will that mean in 2022? Is Georgia's shift going to endure? Are Florida and North Carolina stubbornly red and staying there? Um, Mike, why don't you take this one?
1: Uh, this is actually a question I'm going to be doing a lot of work on again over the, the next couple of months. And the reason why is I believe that we're on the cusp of a profound political realignment in our national politics. It was one that I was fortunate enough to effectuate with you know the people on this podcast and others in the Lincoln Project with what we began to articulate and call the new Southern strategy. The uh, Georgia, Texas, Arizona have been moving towards a more centrist position for some time. I would argue North Carolina is as well. Florida is a little bit of an exception but I believe in the next four to six years the actual base of the Democratic Party will be the Sunbelt. It won't necessarily be the coasts. The reason why that's important is because you could see a moderation in the Democratic Party while you also see a more geographic isolation in the Republican Party um, that will allow potentially in the next 10, 15, 20 years a more moderate style of politics just because of basic demographics. Now, I could be wrong about the way this manifests itself politically, but I'm absolutely convinced that the realignment is occurring. It's why we invested so heavily in Georgia. It's why we invested so heavily early in Arizona. And it's why we were pushing the envelope early on in North Carolina.
0: Thank you, each of you, for spending some time with us today and to all of you at home for listening and making the time for us today. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.